Hare Krishna, we're going to begin on time in a few seconds, actually. That's it. Um, so, uh, thank you all for listening, those of you who are watching and listening. Um, today is the appearance day of Lord Nursingadev. And uh, also my 46th sannyas anniversary. Um, I thought I would begin talking about a, uh, a very interesting person named uh, Hiranyakashipu. Hiranyakashipu. Uh, there was a famous James Bond movie called Goldfinger, so this is Gold Cushion. Uh, gold cushion. Um, he's interesting because he's really, you could say, a demon's demon. Hiranyakashipu, like really, like no other person in the history of the universe, really went all the way. He really went all the way. I mean, consider, for example, when he was getting power. He performed this yoga. Interestingly, the demons also perform yoga because yoga is just a way of getting power, power over yourself and power over the, the, the world. And uh, good people use power for good purposes and bad people use power for bad purposes, but power is power. It's just like both devotees and demons drive cars and you know fly on airplanes and use computers. The uh, you know, some of the best people in the world use computers and terrorist groups use computers. So yoga is power. And uh, in this world, we can observe a law in the universe that power often comes from austerity. For example, in order to go to college, you have to study hard. You have to, in a sense, delay your freedom. Uh, let's say if you're if you get out of high school or drop out of high school, you have a certain freedom. You can, of course, get a job, which limits your freedom. But if you stay in school, then you remain under the authority of teachers, and so you you delay your gratification by staying in college, doing more austerity, and then when you finally get out, as the theory goes, you can make more money. Even, let's say, people that hold jobs. Some people are so attached to their freedom, they would rather be poor and have nothing but not have a job. If you have a job and you have to go to work at a certain time, uh, that's an austerity. But from that austerity, you get money, and money means at least consumer power. And it's not just consumer power, it's the power to live where you want. It's the power to uh, do, in a sense, things that you couldn't do otherwise. So whether it's the austerity of having a job, the austerity of going to college for a long time, um, if you want to have a, uh, a body like, I don't know, like the Terminator, if you want, some people want muscles on their body, so that's another tapasya. And the more people do tapasya, in let's say bodybuilding, the more they have those funny looking muscles that you see on magazines. 
Same thing for, let's say, great athletes or take musicians. You know, many people casually or as a, as a hobby sometimes pick up a musical instruments that may blow on a flute or play a keyboard just for fun. But the people who are really good at it are the people that work very, very, very hard. In fact, if you look at famous athletes, famous musicians, uh, and, and famous people in other walks of life, oftentimes there were many, many people that had as much, you could say, born or innate talent as them. There are many people that have the same, not most people you could say, but there are a number of people who have the same talent as those who go on to become famous athletes, musicians, or make a lot of money and so on. The difference is, and, and people who are very successful will often tell you this, they just work much harder. They really work very hard. So you can see a general principle in this world that hard work, as we would put it, or as they might say in Sanskrit, tapasya, hard, intelligent work leads to power, artistic power, athletic power, financial power, political power, uh, and also spiritual power. Now, in the case of Hiranyakashipu, gold cushion, um, he took it all the way. He performed so many austerities in his yoga practice that there was nothing left of him but a skeleton, and he actually kept his prana, his life air, circulating inside his bones. Now, you can't fast more than that. I mean, how are you going to beat that? Though, you know, some people may be proud of their fasting. But how are you going to beat that? It's a, there's, no, there's nothing left but your bones. And so it's funny because when Brahma came to him to give him a blessing, I, I, maybe Brahma was just speaking to a skeleton, if you think about it. And so he got this power, and he got power over the universe. Like we see these sort of, in comparison, these petty uh, I probably would say silly, nonsensical politicians of our age that have control over this country or that country or even a state or a city. Or, But Hiranyakashipu made himself the dictator of the, of the universe. So he performed the greatest austerities. He got the greatest political and military power that you can possibly have. And uh, naturally, he was not really humble about it. I mean, if you consider ourselves, any little ability we have, we tend to become proud. We are not in charge of universes. We haven't fasted until we're just bones and prana. And yet, and yet we become proud. We're proud of our achievements, which in comparison to gold cushion, Hiranyakashipu, um, are infinitesimal, most trivial accomplishments, and yet it makes us proud. So imagine how proud Hiranyakashipu was. Imagine how proud Hiranyakashipu was. So um, he was very proud. And there is a common tendency that parents become attached to having their children obey them. If you think about it, when people, when, you know, 
when parents have children and the children are completely dependent on the parents, literally, I mean, they can't live. They can't feed themselves. They can't defend themselves. And so the parents uh, have this uh, complete control over their children. And uh, they express their love by working hard and taking care of their children. But of course, to the extent that someone in this world is attached to lording it over, and that's why we all came down here uh, to lord it over. So even though, let's say, normal parents would give their lives for their children and, and are convinced that they love their children, there's also an element of control, that I control my children, and they depend on me. And parents become attached to the children, looking up to the parents and depending on the parents and following the parents. And of course, as we know, once they hit their teenage years, that is totally history, at least in the modern world. So, uh, so sometimes that can lead to conflict. Remember that Prahlad was only five years old. He was quite precocious. So consider that um, at the age of five, I mean, normally, at the age of five, a child is completely under the control and care of his parents, and parents naturally take it for granted that they will make every important decision in the life of a five-year-old. And so Hiranyakashipu was not only an, like the ultimate control freak, which he was, he had the natural sentiment of a father. So imagine you combine these two things, the, the strong bodily parental attachment and being the biggest control freak in the universe. So if you just combine those two things, it's easy to understand why Hiranyakashipu was uh, seriously displeased when his son, in his view, joined the enemy. His ultimate enemy was Vishnu. For one thing, because, probably the main thing, Vishnu was the only person in the universe uh, who posed a serious threat to Hiranyakashipu. There were no other contenders. There was no other challenge or menace or threat. Uh, he had uh, this very strong hegemony, cosmic hegemony. But Vishnu was a different story. And you can see this actually in the 10th canto of the Bhagavatam where the Asuras are always sort of trying to figure out who Vishnu is and they always boast that, yes, I can defeat Vishnu. Vishnu is nothing compared to me. But they never really convince themselves. They're always nervous about it. They're always, you know, looking in their rearview mirror, so to speak, at Vishnu. And so um, when Hiranyakashipu heard that his son had become a devotee, like, you know, devoted, a lover of the Lord, this was, um, I mean, it's hard to imagine anything worse from gold cushions point of view. After all, I mean, what do people hate more than treason, than, you know, it's, it's one thing when someone is your known enemy. So, so, you know, you fight your enemy because that is your known enemy. 
But it's something else when someone you opened your heart to, someone you trusted, betrays you, in your opinion. That is not something that you were emotionally prepared for. As in the case of someone that you already know is your enemy, and so you sort of pre-hate that person. You don't open your heart at all to that person, other only to the extent there's hatred in your heart. And, and anything that person does, no matter what nasty, dirty trick that person does, it won't surprise you because you already hate that person and you expect that person to do bad things against you. But for someone, when you trust and love someone and they stick the knife in your back, in your opinion, that is probably the most uh, painful and uh, enraging thing. So, I mean, it's hard to imagine anything that anyone could do that would have made Hiranyakashipu so angry. And uh, that explains also, considering that he's a, an Asura, why his, he was so angry that he wanted to kill his own son. Which, and he would not have been the first, frankly, if you look at the history of political leadership. Actually, he might have been the first because that took place a long time ago, at least maybe the first in this universe. So, um, and of course, Prahlad is a pure devotee and Prahlad was not really present there. He was in his own spiritual space. Uh, Prahlad was not really in the material world. He was uh, deeply in touch with the Lord and thinking of Krishna everywhere, seeing Krishna everywhere. And to him, the what was going on externally, like his father raging and everything, was kind of like if you walk into a house and there's a television set playing over in the corner and you're not really interested in the program. So for Prahlad, all these things that his father was doing were kind of like some television show that's going on in the corner that you're not really watching. He was completely absorbed in Krishna. So we know the story, Hiranyakashipu tried to kill his son, couldn't, and then uh, Prahlad, in answer to Hiranyakashipu's question, informed his father that uh, God is all-pervading. One of the impressive features of the Supreme Lord is that he is all-pervading, and Prahlad tried to explain that to his father. His father was not, so to speak, a good candidate for the Bhakta program. He's the kind of person that doesn't come back to the Sunday feast. <laughs> <laughs> and so um, then you know the story uh, Lord Nisingadeva appeared and a battle ensued and Hiranyakashipu lost and the Lord won heavily favored of course Krishna was heavily favored in that battle so um, I had the great privilege and honor of uh, taking sannyas sannyas order of life uh, on this day in 1972, which appears to be 46 years ago. I was 23 years old, and uh, maybe I'll just speak briefly about uh, what happened. Uh, and I, uh, in telling the story of how Prabhupada blessed me in this way with this uh, fabulous sannyas order of life, um, I first have to thank 
my former wife, Ananga Manjari, because it was really uh, Krishna acted through her. I was very fortunate to have to have an excellent wife, and um, who understood me, who understood actually that I was sort of meant to go around the world and preach, and uh, by her Krishna consciousness, by her intelligence, uh, she understood. Uh, she understood me spiritually, that this is what I was meant to do. And of course, when I asked Prabhupada for sannyas in May of 19, uh, I think it was May then, 1972, I went with my wife because I knew he would ask her whether she approved, and she did. And so in that sense, it was by the blessing of my wife that I was able to take sannyas because Prabhupada insisted on that. So um, the day we took sannyas, we came, I, I came into the temple room. I was still wearing my grihasta clothes. I think in those days, uh, grihastas wore yellow, which is kind of interesting. So it was like yellow and orange, kind of nice colors for those of you who are into color combinations. Anyway, so... Um, we sat down for the ceremony, and it, the ceremony took place during the morning program. During the morning program. And Prabhupada, instead, at the time he normally chanted Jai Radha Madhava, instead he chanted Bhajahude Mana. Bhajahude Mana Srinanda Nandana Abhaya Charanada Vindare. Edhana Jovana Putra. And, and I remember I was standing in the back of the temple room. I hadn't, they were still setting up the fire sacrifice and Prabhupada chanting, it was so ecstatic that I remember, and I, as some of you may know, I'm more the rational kind. I'm not always talking about my mystic experiences, but I do have them. And on that morning when Prabhupada was chanting Bajahu Remana, the, it was so transcendental that it appeared to me that the whole temple room was dancing and I don't mean all the human devotees in the temple room I mean the building it actually Prabhupada, Prabhupada sometimes would just sort of take away the uh, the curtain he would pull the curtain back and just demonstrate inconceivable spiritual potency which he didn't do I mean you could say for those who are pure, he was doing it all the time, but sometimes he did it in a way that everyone could see it. And it, it really looked like the whole building was dancing. This this is the old temple room in L.A., the one that Prabhupada wanted to keep as the temple room, so of course it wasn't kept as the temple room. But anyway, that was the old temple room that Prabhupada personally designed, and the whole building seemed to be dancing. So that was one very ecstatic, amazing experience. And then... When Prabhupada began singing Bajahu Remana, my realization of why he was chanting that instead of Radha Madhava, especially because there's a line in that song, Eidhana Jovana Putra Padijana, that there, where the author of the song, Govindadas, says that um, wealth, Eidhana, this, this wealth or the money that one always tries to make in, in business. And uh, especially in family life, you have to make money. You have to take care of your family. So, Edana Jovana, youth, your money and your youth, uh, Putra, your children, children, and Parijana, and all of your relatives. Because when one takes sannyas, of course, I mean, 
there are unlimited jokes one could make about sannyasis giving up wealth <laughs> in the modern day. I understand that uh, the uh, current social conditions where people give a lot of donations to sannyasis, but um, I mean, and there is a bit of humor there. But in defense of the sannyas ashram, I would say that um, in sannyas life, even if one does receive a lot of money, as um, as Prabhupada did actually, that you really have to visibly spend it for the mission. For example, I don't drive around in a luxury car. Why? Because I think it's inappropriate uh, to take all the respect given to a sannyasi and then, you know, buy a luxury car for myself. Of course, Prabhupada sometimes had luxury cars, but that was a different time. Those were different circumstances, and I'm not going to uh, imitate that. But in my own life, those are my own instincts, that it just, it's not appropriate. And um, I, I do have on, by the way, this $300 designer shirt. That's a joke. It's actually, that was a joke. So a sannyasi, even if, even if he's given a lot of money, has to be very careful if he is serious in his duty to only spend money in ways that are clearly meant for spreading the Hare Krishna movement and helping Vaishnavas. So there is that restriction. By the way, I appreciate all these funny little uh, things that bubble up that the devotees send on Facebook. They're kind of funny. So, um, so Prabhupada was singing to us and saying, do not lament that you are giving up certain things. You're not going to live in a family, a normal bio family with your dear wife and your kids and all that. That's not going to happen. You're giving that up. And you're not going to have the freedom to spend whatever money you receive as you like. It's like it's nobody's business. It's my money. You know, it's, um, no, you have to really, and you have to spend your life trying to help other people, which is ecstatic. And Lord Krishna says in the Bhagavad Gita that that is the greatest service and no one pleases me more than the person who preaches, but it is, can be exhausting. You know, there's such a thing as clergy burnout. And so uh, always having to live for other people, it has profound rewards. It has extraordinary rewards, but it's also in its own way an austerity. Just like uh, family life involves a lot of austerity, but it also has its rewards. So, um, so that was my realization at the time. I was 23 years old, and my realization was that Prabhupada is a loving spiritual father uh, encouraging his, his children and saying, I appreciate that you're doing this for my mission and be strong and don't lament and uh, just go out there and um, go out there and do it. So then as per custom in the middle of the ceremony, actually it's another interesting thing, Kirtananda Swami did the fire sacrifice and um, Prabhupada asked him to give the talk. Prabhupada actually didn't give the lecture at my sannyasa initiation. It was myself and three others, myself, Rupanuga, Saswarupa, and Bali Mardan. Uh, the four of us took sannyas together in May of 1972. And Prabhupada asked Kirtananda, who did the fire sacrifice, to also give a talk, which he did. 
And then at a certain point, uh, the sannyas candidates left the room, the temple room. And uh, actually, first, uh, some devotees brought us on these platters, so to speak, on a silver platter, <laughs> our new sannyas clothes. And I don't think it was new neck beads or some kind of thing in this con where you change your neck beads. I don't know if that's really required. But anyway, at least we had our sannyas clothes. And uh, so we went out, obviously. Uh, to a private room, we changed into our sannyas clothes and took our dundas, and uh, we marched back into the temple room. No, actually, no, no, the dunda. I'm remembering now. Sorry, I'm just, I'm just, I haven't really thought about this. But we came back in our sannyas clothes, and then we sat down, and then Prabhupada called us up one by one, and he gave us our dunda. So there was a physical awarding of sannyas. By Prabhupada, in, this, in the sense that he actually handed us our dandas. And <laughs> there's some funny stories, too, because right after the sannyas ceremony, uh, we went out on Harinam. The idea was that the new, because in those days there were very, very, very few sannyasis. I think the only sannyasis in Iskand then were uh, Tamal Krishna and. Uh, I think Kir yeah, Kirananda was in good standing then. Kirananda, Tamal Krishna, and Trivikram. Trivikram. I think I think that was it. I don't think I don't know if there were any other sannyasis. And Iskand had gotten pretty big, so sannyas then was a huge thing. It was a huge thing to be a sannyasi. So the leaders decided that just after the sannyas ceremony, we should all go together, and they had a huge Sankirtan vehicle, and we'd all go, we went to Long Beach, and we would go to Long Beach and do Harinam, and the charismatic new sannyasis would you know, lead the devotees in Harinam to show that we'd taken sannyas to preach, not just to get free lunch. Although, you know, can't complain about free lunch either, right? So um, we went out to Long Beach, and it's interesting because it was May, but it was a hot day, and the sun was very bright, and we didn't wear hats in those days because in those days we didn't know there were supernatural entities out there like skin cancer. And so I actually got sort of a mild case of heat stroke. So we were coming back from Sankirtan and I was standing there, you know, in the front of this very large Sankirtan vehicle and all the devotees were there, you know, admiring the new sannyasis and I was preaching. And meanwhile, I was so nauseous. I was like, I, I mean, I couldn't believe how nauseous I was from this heat stroke. And yet, I had to be tough. I had to be. I had to be the strong sannyasi. Everyone thought I was supposed to be. So I remember that, you know, giving you know the strong preaching while I was almost like fainting from this heat stroke. But anyway, it was fun. Then we went back to Prabhupada's room after that, and he wanted to. See, I can't. I can't remember actually technically whether we went to see Prabhupada before or after the Harinam. But around that time, he went to Prabhupada's room, and Prabhupada's mood was not like uh, you know praising us. It was like okay. I trusted you. I gave you some yas. Now, you know, what the hell are you going to do? It's like, what are you going to do with this? And so um, I remember Satsarupa asked Prabhupada, are there any special duties for sannyasis? And, and, and Prabhupada said, just keep the wheels turning. In other words, don't get bogged down. Don't just stay in one place and end up falling in love or something or becoming attached to power. Because that's what happens if you... You know, if a sannyasi stays in one place, then you see the same people every day. And the Bhagavatam says, Jayato Bishyan Pungsa, by contemplating the sense objects. And so 
if a sannyasi, let's say, keeps seeing the same attractive woman every day, and that woman notices that the sannyasi is actually occasionally looking at her, and so naturally she volunteers, do some special service, and the sannyasi is delighted to get that special service from such a sincere soul, and I'm sure you can all connect the rest of the dots. In fact, that's where Chaturmasya comes from. Chaturmasya just means the four months, the four-month season, because in India, the sannyasis would either be in very remote locations where they just performed austerities, or they would travel around and teach. But what they would not do is just hang out in cities, just hang out in society. They were not in society, so to speak. And so they walked around and often walked barefoot, or maybe they had sandals. But the point is, in ancient India, roads were not paved. That was the pre-asphalt buloka. And in India, at least northern India, there are four months when it rains a lot, like there's a ridiculous amount of rain. Basically, it's all the rain they're going to have for the rest of the year. And so the roads get very, very muddy, and walking around during the rainy season is just, it's just not, it's not something you're going to do. It's not practical. You'd end up most of the time up to your knees in mud. And so Therefore, the sannyasis stop during the rainy season because the roads are all just full of mud and, and water. But when you stop, that means you're in some village and um, there's some you know, beautiful young ladies that are so excited and thrilled to have this opportunity to serve a sannyasi. And again, you know, we all know what comes next. And that's why it's during the Chaturmasya when the sannyasis can't travel to kind of stuck in one place that they perform extra austerities to make sure they don't get themselves in trouble. So they eat very little, and there's all kinds of austerities to keep them out of trouble. That's the whole point, obviously. Not a bad idea. It's kind of practical. Because even Krishna says in the Bhagavad Gita, Vishaya vinivartante niraha rasidehina. When embodied souls fast, all the senses kind of weaken. And so, but Krishna says the taste remains. Now, so if you have a, a sort of a permanent strategy of just fasting, then obviously, eventually your desires will overcome you. But if it's just four months, like, you know, just you can hang in there for four months, and then as soon as the four months are over, you can start traveling again, and then you can have, finally have a good meal. <laughs> because, you're first of all, you're walking, you're getting a lot more exercise, and you're traveling. So these things are all very practical. Uh, they say even the saffron color for renunciants is because they're always traveling around and it kind of, it's an earth color so that you wouldn't see all the dirt as easily, which is an interesting concept. So anyway, um, so Prabhupada said keep the wheels turning because in this age, he didn't say just keep the sandals flopping because, you know, in this day and age we have cars, we have motorized vehicles. And I remember when, uh, then the next day we were walking at Venice Beach with Prabhupada and Vishnu Jana was on the walk, Vishnu Janaswami, who was a really, really nice person. And he went to Prabhupada and said, uh, I've heard that our dandas are incarnations of Vishnu so we can offer our food to our dandas. All I can say is in 1972, this is the kind of thing that devotees could even believe and some devotees could even believe in 2017. Anyway, 2018. So Prabhupada just kind of looked at him and kind of laughed like, is that a serious question? He said, no. <laughs> Danda is not a deity of Vishnu. And then I think either Satsarupa or Vishnu Jana asked Prabhupada, 
whether sannyasi should travel with deities. And Prabhupada said, no. He said, Lord Chaitanya never traveled with deities. Of course, nowadays, it's kind of like the, the way that sannyasis travel with shilas. And I'm not criticizing that. I mean, I'm not, there's nothing, I'm not criticizing. I'm just saying that in my presence, Prabhupada said that we should follow Lord Chaitanya and we don't need to travel with deities. But of course, someone wants to, they can. So uh, I took sannyas and I set out to preach. Actually, I had an interesting, and then these interesting things kept happening when I took sannyas. Um, I think I think the next day after I took sannyas, I went out with a couple of brahmacharis to do book distribution. So we went to these apartment buildings not far from the temple. Um, anyway, so uh, I approached this one guy, and he was, I think, uh, a pimp. And there was a guy that manages prostitutes, and he had some of his girls are with him. Of course, I was very you could say innocent. I mean, for one thing, in my neighborhood, there were no prostitutes or pimps. And so, I mean, where I grew up, I'd never really seen that. So I approached him and, and, and told him it was about God. He was so angry. I mean, that's all I did. I just approached him and said, hi, this is a nice magazine about whatever. Back to Godhead. And he was so angry just at seeing Krishna, seeing Bhagavad Gita, that he literally started like rolling up his sleeves like, like, like he's going to punch me or something. And so I was thinking, seriously? I was like, I was thinking, boy, this guy's really nuts. So I, you know, I'm not, I just, I just taken sannyas. I'm not going to start, you know, hitting him with my dunda or something. So I had tennis shoes on and I had been very athletic before I joined the Hare Krishna movement. So I just sort of, I easily outran him. I told the brahmacharis, like, let's go. So, so we just continued Sankirtan. And then about a half hour later, I had to sort of not go to where that person had been, but just, go past that street a half block away and he saw me again he started he started chasing us again i thought this is so funny so i was i was actually had the honor of being attacked by a pimp on my first day out on book distribution after taking sannyas so um then i really had no plan i mean that was the mood back then you take sannyas you're just kind of you just krishna will show you what to do which was actually a good idea so then I remember Tulsi Das, my godbrother Tulsi Das, who was at that time was president of Denver, which was a big temple, came to me and said, you know, we came down here, the temple came down to see Prabhupada, we're going back to Denver, driving back, why don't you come with us? So I said, sure. I, I mean, I had, didn't have any better offer than that. So I um, got in the car because I was a sannyasi. I got sit in the front seat and uh, we drove to Denver without stopping, which means we drove all night, which was not a great idea, but it wasn't my decision. So we got to Denver, and there I was. And suddenly I was a sannyasi, and everybody wanted to hear from me, and uh, it was pretty ecstatic. So I would go out every day and sell books. There was a market chain, supermarket chain back then in the West called Westward Ho Markets. Westward Ho was the kind of like the battle cry, people that were going west in the old frontier days, Westward Ho, like Jai Ho. So there was a Westward Ho market chain. I would go in front of the door, the entrance to the market, and just sell books all day. And then, and then preach, you know, in the classes. When I had enough money, I took a plane to Chicago, Denver to Chicago. And my brahmacharya assistant, who had asked to join me, uh, Ojaswi, he passed away, but he was my first brahmacharya assistant officially, Ojaswi. He didn't, do, didn't sell as many books. He didn't have enough, enough money for his ticket, so he had to, wait a few days so he and then i flew to chicago by the time he flew to chicago 
I had already flown to um, Pittsburgh, actually. I was uh, kind of in that mood of sannyasa and uh, 23 years old. So when I, I, no, no, actually, I take that back. I flew from Chicago to New York, and I got there in the middle of the night. I mean, we were so spaced out back then. We didn't do things like take flights that arrived at appropriate hours. Oh, here's a flight, you know, 23-year-old male, brain not fully formed. So I arrived in the middle of the night, you know, at midnight, and, and um, somehow or other I found my way, took a train, got to the Brooklyn Temple. There was, and uh, Balimardan Maharaj at that time, Swami, he had taken sannyas with me, and so he was happy to see me when I walked in. For some reason, he and Jayadweda, who was Brahmacharya then, were still up. It was very late, and, and Jayadweda was in Balimardan's office, and, and when I came in, they led me to his room. I think it was Gadadhar Brahmacharya that greeted me. And he got me to the train station. Then he took me to the temple president's room, who was Balimardan. And then Balimardan, the first thing he said to me was, Oh, Hridayananda Goswami, it's nice to see you. You know, uh, your former wife is here in the temple. And so, you know, I mean, I've been sannyas literally about two weeks. And so <laughs> I just talked to him for three minutes, offered obeisances, and had someone take me back to the train station. And... I took a train or a bus, I took something to Pittsburgh. And why did I go to Pittsburgh? Uh, well, as the eternal question goes, why not? Somehow, I, I, I think someone suggested like, hey, why don't you go to Pittsburgh? Some devotee said that, so. <laughs> so I wasn't the closest temple, but I took an overnight. And so I got to Pittsburgh and went to the temple. And when I got there, they told me there's going to be a huge festival. Like in those days, they had these gigantic hippie festivals and new age festivals. And this one was being held in State College, one of the great university cities in America, which is sort of halfway between Pittsburgh and Philadelphia, Penn State, Pennsylvania State University. So I, I went with them to the festival. And that's when I met Ravindra Swaroop, who was president of, of Philadelphia. And uh, we actually took over the festival. I'll tell you what happened. This is a true story. Uh, it was this huge festival of thousands of people, and it started to rain. I mean, seriously rain. And so everyone took shelter in this huge geodesic dome, which was part of the festival. So we were in there also. And so the devotees were all huddled around me because I was a sannyasi, you know, the senior, mature, wise, 23-year-old. And so... Um, devotees were all around me and I was preaching and people started listening because I was kind of like really preaching and people started turning around and gathering around and and it started to turn into a Hare Krishna program like thousands of people and then I said let's do kirtans we did kirtan everyone got into it I mean there was nothing else to do plus these were people that had come to sort of a mystic new age festival so everyone was chanting and um, it, this whole this huge festival in a major university city literally turned into a Hare Krishna festival. And we were chanting and chanting, and after about an hour, I was like, I can't play the drum anymore. And <laughs> my voice. So I, you know, I did one of those things where you kind of like dramatically end the kirtan, speed up, then do a fancy little drum thing, and then end the kirtan. Problem is, nobody stopped. I, I realized there's no off switch on this kirtan. Because the people chanting, they just like, they just kept going. They didn't even slow down. And it went on for another hour or two. They were, you couldn't turn it off. They were just, so, so that's how it turned into a Hare Krishna festival. 
And then I wanted to keep moving because Prabhupada said, keep the wheels turning. I took that very seriously. Keep the wheels turning. Don't get entangled. Just, you know, your 23-year-old sannyasi. Keep moving. So in those days, and maybe still, they have in America something called drive-away cars, which means that there are people who want to transport their automobiles from one city to another, but they can't drive themselves. And so they put an advertisement and then someone that wants to go to that city offers to drive the car. So the person driving only pays gas and then they get, in a sense, almost like a free trip to, um, to where they're going. So I got one of those cars. It was a Carmen Ghia. Like, I don't think they make, I don't think they make those anymore. It's like a really tiny Volkswagen, but like a really little one. And so the obvious question is, you know, how many Hare Krishnas could fit into a, a Carmen Ghia? And the answer was, in this case, four or five. So there we were, four or five in this tiny little car, and we drove. And um, by the time we were going to Houston, when we got to South Carolina, I think a probably a light came on saying that there was a serious problem with the motor. And somehow either the light didn't come on or I didn't see the light. But since I'm an ISKCON leader, I'll say the light didn't come on. So um, the car broke down and the car was towed, I think, to Anderson, South Carolina. And this is, this is South Carolina in 1972. I mean, South Carolina in 1972 was basically California in 1952. And... So we took it to the Volkswagen play. No, and, and then we, they were very nice to us, actually. There was a nice young guy who's the owner of this really modern new Volkswagen place. And so we went, you know, let's go sell books. So we went around door to door, and the first door, someone opened the door, and there was this huge dog. I mean, this dog was like a small horse, and it was like barking. It looked like it just really wanted to have us for lunch. And so we ran, and I thought, well, Maybe that's enough door-to-door -door for right now. Then we ran into this guy, this young guy, our age. In those days, he was like he was kind of like a hip-type person in Anderson, South Carolina, which means that anyone else that looked a little different became his best friend immediately because this was Anderson, South Carolina, 1972. So he really liked us. He liked Krishna consciousness. And it turned out that his father was the police chief in Anderson, South Carolina which means that we had no further problems with um, Sankirtan if we wanted to go out. So we actually stayed in his house. We actually stayed in the home of the police chief while our car was being fixed. And then back in the uh, Volkswagen place, there was a like a second floor that was open. There was no ceiling. It was just like it was one big open building, but it had like a platform, like a mezzanine, they call it. And so what I did was, we were so strict, is that in the evening before the place closed, because we all, I'd become friends with the, the, the dealership owner and all the salesmen. So we actually, they gave us permission. We set up a little altar upstairs in this open showroom. And we set up our pictures and we had a, a full evening program with drum, kartals, kibajaya, baj, everything, baja bhagata. And all the car salesmen and the owner actually took part in the kirtan. They actually came to the evening program. So that was really great. And then um, by the time I left there, I was like, you know, I was really friends with the owner, nice young guy, owner of the car dealership. Anyway, then finally we, we got the car fixed. We made it to Houston. And uh, and then so many things happened. I developed my college preaching program. But uh, Prabhupada said, maybe I'll, I'll end with this, uh, just one more last thing. And that is 
one more last thing. Yes. And that is that um, Prabhupada says something to me which was so important. I remember when I came to see Prabhupada the day I took sannyas, and Prabhupada said to me that just as just as Lord Nursinga did, just as Lord Nursinga protected Prahlad Maharaj, he will also protect you. He will also protect you. And I mean, you can just imagine the um, what a blessing that is. And I've always believed that, and and I've always found it to be true that throughout my life, the Lord has really protected me. And I mean, the fact, I mean, when I was young, the way I lived when I was young, even before I joined the movement, the way I used to drive when I was a teenager, I mean, if you want to prove that God exists, it's I'm still alive. I mean, the fact that I'm still alive is an absolute proof that there's a God. And even as a young devotee, I mean, so many adventures, so many dangerous situations, all kinds of dangers. And Krishna always protected me. He always, and he, he, he's protected me, he protects me every day. And actually, if we accept him, Krishna will protect us every day. And, and Krishna comes in a special form, Nrsingadev, just to emphasize, to emphasize that he really is protecting us. So there's that special pastime to emphasize how he is our protector. There's that song that Prabhupada put at the beginning of the Krishna book, Krishna, 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 uh, Krishna, hey, then Raksha Mam, which means protect me, Pala Mam, take care of me, guard me, protect me. And even the residents of Vrindavan, they're pure devotees, they're eternally liberated devotees, but when there was this danger, there are some dangers that are so shocking that you just cry out to Krishna. That is not, uh, doesn't mean you're approaching Krishna with material desire. Some things are just really shocking. Some situations are just so difficult that you just, for your own sanity, you have to cry out to Krishna for protection. And that's even what the, the liberated devotees in Krishna's Vrindavan, they did that. So Krishna is eternally our protector. Anyway, thank you all very much. And uh, I wish everyone a happy Lord Narasingha Appearance Day. And thank you all for watching. Hare Krishna.